great. If you have your Bible, please turn in that Bible to Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, then get one of the ones on the end of each pew, and it's on page 942 in that Bible. And if you don't have one at all, then just take it home. It's our gift to you. We want you to have the Bible. So let's read together as we're continuing in the book of Romans. Uh, We're going to read from Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. That's where we are today. It says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We're coming to a passage today that explains a couple of words that you find throughout the New Testament put together, this little phrase, in Christ, that you find especially in uh, the works of Paul in the New Testament. It's not actually, that phrase is not actually in this passage, but this passage is describing what it means. Now, most of us, when we, when we talk, we use throwaway words here and there, especially when we're nervous or we don't quite know what the next word is that's supposed to come or we just have a verbal tick. We'll use these words like, uh, and you know, and if that makes sense, and just, and and. You could go on and on with those words like that. And sometimes we even use throwaway words in our prayers, and they don't really sound like throwaway words. They sound very beautiful. They might even be names of God, but things that we just kind of throw in because we don't know what else to say here and there. And so we get these little verbal flourishes that don't really mean anything when we say them. They're just something to put there. And when we come to the Bible, we sometimes think that maybe the Bible is talking the same way. We can skip over little words and phrases and think, well, that's just a little flourish to kind of make it a little bit more holy, a little bit more Christian. And sometimes you can think that with those words, in Christ. Well, I'm here to tell you that the words in Christ are not throwaway words in the Bible. You could think that. I'll just give you a couple of examples. 2 Corinthians one twenty one says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. You could just think, well, in Christ, that's just a, that's a throwaway. You could just take that out and it would mean the same thing. But no, that's important. He establishes us in Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Again, you could think, well, I could just throw away the words in Christ. It would mean, no, it doesn't. In Christ is meaningful there. And we haven't had that phrase much in the book of Romans yet, but it's about to start coming a lot because we're about to figure out what it means to be in Christ, which is to be no longer in Adam, but now in Christ. Those words are significant. It means that we are no longer united to our old head, Adam, but when we've come to faith in Jesus, we are now united to Christ. Union with Christ. Not just filler words, but important for our eternity. Things like, you see this a little more clearly in places like 1 Corinthians 15, 22, which was in what we prayed just a second ago. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is significant. 
Or 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Those words, in Christ, that you'll find, especially in Paul's letters, they have to do with a new identity, a new life, a new category, a new citizenship, a new creation, a new humanity, a new Adam that we would be united together with, whose name is Jesus Christ. We were once an Adam, but when you've come to faith in Jesus, you are now in a new Adam, whose name is Jesus Christ. It matters a lot. It is huge that we are united to Christ and no longer united to Adam. You're on a different team now. When the Bucks play the Patriots, nobody is confused about which team Tom Brady is on, even though he used to be on the other one. It makes a huge difference that now he plays for the Bucks. It's a whole different ball game. And once we were in Adam, but now when you have come to Christ, when you have rested upon him in faith for your salvation, upon him alone, you are now in Christ. You are on a different team. So we come to these verses that explain that here in Romans 5, 18 and 19, and we need to know what we're looking at and what the context is here. This is part of a section of scripture that is all about assurance of salvation. He's laid out earlier in Romans why it is that everybody needs to be saved because both Jew and Gentile are under sin and completely lost apart from faith in Christ. He's laid out that it's the same gospel for everybody, Jew and Gentile and barbarian and anywhere in between, that it all has to do with coming to faith in Jesus. It has to do with Jesus' propitiation for our sins and receiving that life that he purchased on the cross by faith and not by works. And he's outlined that in in Romans 4 with the example of Abraham. And now he's come to Romans 5. And all the way from Romans 5 to Romans 8 is all about that we who have come to faith in Jesus can be sure that Jesus will save us. That he will save his people to the very end. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you hear those words? Those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all about our assurance. Now where we are in verse 18 is actually picking up from something that started in verse 12. So look at your Bibles. If you didn't open it yet, then you need to open your Bible. Romans 5, 12, it said, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, now, if you, were, if you were looking at this grammatically, you would say, there's a just as, that ought to be followed up with a so also, but there's not one there. Well, where it follows up is in the verses we're in today. So he, he expounded upon that idea that death spread from Adam to all men. He, death reigned, that, uh, that then he, he talked about the, that there is an alternative, which is the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, and he explained that. But now he's picking up on that logical statement that he started in verse 12, and he's kind of saying it again. And he says, so, and he says it twice, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. As... By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So 
by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we have these two verses that are they're almost saying exactly the same thing, almost in the same words as each other. So we're going to kind of trace what he's saying here and trace it in three ways. And we're going to kind of, just because of the structure of these verses and the way that these words are parallel to each other, we're going to kind of be in both verses at the same time as we go through. But I hope you'll, you'll follow along in the back of your bulletin and kind of see the outline there. That might help it make a little more sense. But the first thing we see in verses 18 and 19 of Romans chapter 5 is that all hope was lost in Adam. All hope lost in Adam. And when God made mankind, he made man in his image, male and female, in his image, and he gave them a commission to keep the garden and to work it, to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply. And there was a lot of promise. He gave them every tree in the garden, including the tree of life that they could have eaten from and lived forever. He gave them all kinds of help. He set them up for success. He made them in his image. He made them his vice regents over the earth. There was a lot of promise, and it was lost. Now, that's not to say that humanity is, has absolutely nothing good about it today. That's not what it means. There's a lot of what we call common grace of God, that, that, that there are good things that God still has brought about through humanity. You know, there's been a lot of amazing technological advances. There have been people who have been lifted out of poverty in huge numbers all over the world, especially in the last 50 years or so. It's just remarkable. And we keep learning all the time more and more about how to use the, the creation around us without using it up. And so, so there's a, a lot of great things that you can still see as far as what man can accomplish here on earth. But listen to this, what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Yes, there's a lot that mankind can do as far as gaining the world. And we're seeing more and more and more of that. And that's fine. That's good. But what does it profit if he loses his soul? That goes for each and every one of us. And it goes for mankind in general. Hope was lost in Adam. It was lost through one trespass. It says in verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. What was that one trespass? Well, it was the forbidden fruit thing that happened back in Genesis chapter 3. That God said, you shall not eat from this tree. And then the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, what did they do? They ate from that tree. They stole from God. They believed Satan instead of believing God. They thought God was trying to trick them while Satan was tricking them. They sinned. And we sinned. But one trespass, one trespass. Can you imagine what it would be like if they hadn't sinned? If they hadn't sinned, if Adam hadn't taken that fruit that God had explicitly told him, you shall not take of this, if he had not directly disobeyed the command of the eternal holy God. Think how serious that is. But if he hadn't done that, when we say I'm only human, it wouldn't mean I'm only sinful. That's what people mean usually when they say I'm only human, right? I am sinful in some way. 
Well, sin is not an essential part of humanity. Jesus was not a sinner. He was fully human. Amazing. Adam, when he was created, was not a sinner, nor was Eve. And had they not sinned, humanity would have stayed out of sin. But there was this massive tragedy. And it is a massive tragedy, not just a thing that's far removed from you. It is a massive personal tragedy for each and every one of us that our first parents transgressed. And by one transgression, one trespass, it led to condemnation for all men. One trespass, it says in verse 18, and then in verse 19, it says, one man's disobedience. One man's disobedience. This was a trespass against an actual command. This was actual disobedience, not just some kind of a matter of a lapse in judgment or a questionable thing of wisdom. Maybe he should have done it a little bit better when there were lots of ways to do it. No, this was the one direct spoken command that Adam had received from the mouth of God, and he disobeyed it. Guys, a direct command from the mouth of God doesn't have to be something just like, you shall not murder. Boy, that sounds much more serious than you shall not eat of that fruit, right? But here's the thing. This was disobedience to God. That is why death exists. That is why there is sin and condemnation, because Adam did what he was told by God not to do. He was told what the consequence would be, which is you will surely die, and he did it anyway, and not just for himself, but for us. Think of that. That one guy in that garden across the world so many thousands of years ago, doing that one thing for you, bringing death to you. That's what happened, and it's a tragedy. Here's the result, sin and condemnation. It says in verse 19, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Made sinners. And in verse 18, before that, it says... It says that this one trespass led to condemnation for all men. It's sin and condemnation. What the fall did, and by the fall I'm talking about that first sin in the garden where mankind fell from his holy and happy state. It, it took humanity from holiness and happiness to sin and misery. Now does that mean that all mankind is as sinful as they could possibly be? No, by God's grace, no. Does it mean that all mankind are as miserable as they could possibly be? By God's grace, no. But every bit of sin and every bit of misery, every bit of condemnation and death it came because of the sin of Adam. That's where it started, in the garden. And it started for you, and it started for me, in the garden. The sin, think about that sin. All were made sinners. For the many were made sinners. Do you know that every sin that you've ever committed, it can be traced back to that sin in the garden? Every, everything sinful in your nature that leads you to commit those sins can be traced back to that sin in the garden. And every sin, get this, 
not just your personal sins, but the ones that bother you that other people commit. The things that people have done against you can be traced back to that first sin in the garden. You see the tragedy here? And not just the sin, but the, the consequence of the sin, the misery, the condemnation. Every bit of misery and discomfort and sadness and pain that you have ever experienced or will ever experience can be traced back to Adam's sin in the garden. Every bit of the reality of your status of being guilty in sin before the judge of all the earth, our guilty sentence could be traced back to Adam. We were guilty even before we carried out those sins. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that even babies die. And the Bible gives us some indication, some hope, some hints, nothing totally clear, but some hints that God would redeem those small children and others who can't understand sin would redeem them by the blood of Jesus, but the fact that they die shows that they're in Adam, that they were counted as guilty and sinful by nature, even if they are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. There's no such thing as an innocent human being, with one exception, whose name is Jesus, right? We'll get to that in a second. And the reality of the death sentence that that guilty verdict brings, the fact that you have to plan for your funeral that's coming, whether you've planned for it or not, it's coming. The fact that you have to plan for what's going to happen with your family after you're gone can be traced back to Adam. The reality of death, the reality of not just physical death, but the reality of eternal conscious torment in a place called hell because of how serious it is to disobey and offend the holy, righteous, eternal God. It can all be traced back to Adam. Hope was lost. Can you imagine what it would have been like getting on the Titanic when they were setting out on that voyage? We know a little bit more now than they did when they were getting on it, didn't they? don't we? Would have been a lot of, would have been a lot of hope, would have been a lot of happiness. Would have, maybe for, for a lot of people, felt like a few days of vacation coming up on the way to this great place called New York. Wherever else they might have gone beyond that. This beautiful ship, this unsinkable ship on its maiden voyage. So much celebration. But just think of the way that that hope turned. When they realized that when they felt that bang, that was going to be the end of the ship. The ship was going down. Guys, the hopelessness of Adam, the hope that was lost in the sin of Adam in the garden is much, much greater than the hope that was lost in the Titanic. So much more. But I have good news too. These verses don't just tell us the good news. These verses are here to assure us They don't just tell us the bad news. They tell us they're here to assure us of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. All hope was lost in Adam, but all hope is found in Christ. It's restored. It's found in Jesus. It says not just that sin and condemnation came in Adam, but it says so one act of righteousness 
leads to justification in life for all men. And by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The many will be made righteous. Okay, all hope is found in Christ. So, it says in verse 18, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What is that one act of righteousness? What's that talking about? Well, it's talking about the cross. It's talking about the cross. When Jesus went and died on the cross, there's something more that was happening there than just a martyr being killed. It's something more than just a a, a sad situation where a good man was given the wrong punishment. What was happening there is that in that one act of righteousness, Jesus was restoring all the hope that was lost in Adam. And not just restoring it, but bringing it bigger, back bigger than it ever was in Adam before his sin. It's so much more. Can you imagine? Just think about what the cross is. And I'm not talking about the physical piece of wood. I'm talking about what happened at the cross. The event of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, being crucified and dying on that piece of wood. I want you to think about this. Christ the Son of God. Listen to these words from Matthew 27. I don't know how often you, you reread the account of Jesus' death on the cross in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, but it's, it's worth doing on a regular basis just to think about what actually happened on my behalf. Here, here's a little bit of what it says as Jesus was hanging on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour, which is noon... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, <coughs> Excuse me, which is 3 p.m. And it says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. They were mocking him, you see. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That means he died. His human soul departed from his human body. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. That's the one act of righteousness. God the Son, the Son of God, God who had taken on flesh for us, God who had committed no sin, went and died a criminal's death in our place, the death that we deserve. Here's how it's put in 1 Peter 3.18. What's the one act of righteousness? Well, it's this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. By the way, that's, that's me. That's that's you. Insert your name there for the unrighteous. 
that he might bring us to God. Mm. Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Guys, remember how God had said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. Did Jesus earn the wage of sin? Did Jesus commit what deserved death? No. He's the only human being who has ever not done what deserves death. Born of a virgin, born sinless, stayed sinless. And yet, what did he do? He went and took the wages of sin, which is death. He took the curse of Adam. He took it on himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Us being real people with real names, real sins, that we bring to God, and he forgives them in Christ. It says also in verse 19, and it said the one act of righteousness in 18, and in 19 it says the one man's obedience as opposed to the one man's disobedience. Adam disobeyed God. You and I have disobeyed God. Did Jesus ever disobey God? Absolutely not. Wouldn't even make sense. He is God. He's not going to disobey himself. And yet he proved that throughout his life. One of the ways that we talk about this is that we have Jesus' active and passive obedience. Right? We just, what we just talked about was the cross. And sometimes we call the cross Jesus' Passive obedience. You, you, you know the term, the passion of the Christ. That word passion, in that sense, has to do with something being done to him. That he was suffering something from outside of himself that was done to him. He didn't actively go and put himself on the cross. He actively or passively allowed himself to be placed on the cross. He obeyed even to the point of death. But verse 19 is also pointing out that Jesus obeyed actively throughout his life. He had his passive obedience in the cross. He had his active obedience as he went about his earthly life, his earthly ministry, without sin. Jesus completely without sin. If you ever kind of wonder about this, didn't Jesus sin when he was a little kid? Didn't Jesus ever do this or do that? Well, no. He didn't. One of the great evidences of that in Scripture is, uh, is that his mother and his brothers, whose names were James and Jude, came to faith in him as God. Isn't that amazing? They didn't recognize it at the time, but after he was raised from the dead, they said, it's true. Sinless. Sinless man. In his act of obedience, he obeyed in our place. You know, well, here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter two, verse, or chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made him, or he made him, that's God the Father made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Him who knew no sin, he went and took on our sin so that we could have his righteousness. Did you know you, you were made a sinner in the first place by another person's disobedience, by Adam? 
And you are made a saint by another person's obedience. And that's Jesus. And that brings us to what it says that he accomplished in his one act of righteousness and in his obedience is that he accomplished justification and life. Here's what Jesus did. It says that this one act of righteousness, verse 18, leads to justification and life for all men. Or in verse 19, it says, the many will be made righteous. Made righteous and justification are essentially the same thing. It's this idea of being put from a wrong standing before God to a right standing before God, from a guilty sentence before God to a sentence of righteous before God, which does not exist in our legal system. A sentence of righteousness. We who have come to Christ are no longer sinners. We are saints from God's perspective, in God's sight. Now, some of you will say, well, no, we're still sinners. We still sin. I know I still sin. Yes, in respect to sanctification, you are still a sinner. You still need to get cleaned up. From the moment you believe, you start that process of growing in Christ-likeness, and it's a bumpy road. It's not a straight line. Yes, you still need to get cleaned up with respect to sanctification, but with respect to justification, with respect to whether or not you are right with God, you are absolutely no longer a sinner whatsoever. You are a full, clean saint, righteous in God's sight from the moment that he gives you the gift of faith in Jesus. You have a right standing. It is being justified. It is being made righteous. If your faith is in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees his son. He's given you justification. He has made you righteous in his sight. And you're going to stand in the day of judgment. You will stand. Because Jesus has paid it all for you. Justification and life, it says. That's life that's never-ending. It's eternal life, the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's life that's in full. Fullness of life. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I, Jesus says, have come that they might have life and have it in full. Mm. Some of you guys might have seen this this, uh, little sermon video clip. It's about a three-minute clip that's been going all over the Internet for the past year or so uh, from Alistair Begg, great preacher out in Ohio, about the man on the the middle cross. And if you haven't seen that, I'd encourage you just to look that up. Just, Just Google it, Alistair Begg, the man on the middle cross. But the gist of it is, just imagine what it was like on the day... When that thief on the cross got to heaven. And Alistair Begg imagines that what would it be like if if maybe an angel came up to him and said, well, how did you get here? The man would say, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe maybe they would have said to him something like, well, did, did did you have a life of good works? No. Exactly the opposite. All the way to the very end. A life of sin. Well, did, did you, you know, do, do you have a, a proper understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith? And he'd say, I've never heard those words before. Say, well, well how, 
How did you get here? And the answer is, the man on the middle cross said, I could come. You see this? It's not about us. If your answer for how you can go to heaven when you die starts with I, it's the wrong answer. Even if it's I placed my faith in Jesus. Guys, your faith is a result of God's grace. It's not the cause of God's grace. It's something that God gives to everyone that he has redeemed in Christ. But but here's the answer. It's him. It's him. There is nothing in here about our contributing in any way to our salvation. It's every bit having to do with Jesus. You were made a sinner in the first place from someone outside yourself whose name was Adam. And you were made a saint and brought to heaven by somebody outside yourself whose name is Jesus. You need to trust in Christ alone and not in yourself. Now, how does this work out? Well, we have the one man and we have the many. Who does this salvation come to? Who is it for? Who was lost? Who is saved? This gets us to some confusing language that's here in these verses. Because if you just read these verses, if they were the only verses of the book of Romans that you had, or the only verses of the Bible, then you might come away from these verses thinking, everybody in the whole world will be saved. You might think that, and in fact, these verses have been twisted to say that by certain sects over the years who would say, well, it says right there that, that, that there is condemnation for all men in Adam, and then it says that there's justification in life for all men. Well, those are the same words, all men here, all men there. That must mean that everybody ever is going to be saved. Or in verse 19, The many were made sinners, and it uses the same words. The many will be made righteous. Well, that must mean that everybody in the whole world is going to be saved. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. What it means is this, and why it says the word all there, we'll get to in just a second, but let's let's first think about what it's getting at overall, which is the idea of you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Either you are in Adam united to Adam, in union with Adam, even if you never heard his name before. You were born that way. A sinner. Or you've been born again to be united to Jesus. This is what we call federal headship. Federal meaning one who's representing the many. Adam represented us in the garden. We all fell in Adam. We need Jesus to represent us at the cross. We need to go out of what's sometimes called the covenant of works, and we need to be brought into the covenant of grace. If you are in Adam, then you have Adam as your head in that old covenant that was set up in the Garden of Eden, which says, do this and you will live. That system is a system of death because we don't do this. We don't live. We came into the world sinners. If you're trying to make it to God in any way based on your works, if you're trying to say, well, God, here is what I can present to you to be accepted, you're operating in the old way, in the old Adam. 
You need to come to the new Adam. You need to come to the covenant of grace. You need to come to the new covenant, as it's called in Jeremiah 31 and throughout the New Testament. You need to come to Jesus, your new head. Now, some people would have a problem with what these verses are teaching. This idea that one person can act on behalf of a whole bunch of other people and get them in trouble. Well, for one thing, I've got to say, if you have a problem with that, then you have a problem with what the Bible is saying. And if you have a problem with what the Bible is saying, then you have a problem with what God is saying, and the problem is you, and the problem is not God. The problem is not the Bible. If we disagree with it, the problem is our own hearts that need to submit to what God has said. And it says this. It says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And by God's grace, it says, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. Mm. But we know this too. We know that one person can do some kind of an action that brings an entire nation into war. Right? We know that. And it's not quite the same thing, but boy, one person really can act on behalf of a whole lot of other people. We, we get that concept. And that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden when, when Adam sinned for all of us. But thank God that's exactly what happened too when Jesus went to the cross and died there for all of his elect from every tribe and tongue and nation. Mm. Nobody is beyond being saved. That's what we're getting at here. That's why I think these words are included this way, where it says, all men in Adam, and then all men in Christ, and the many in Adam, and then the many in Christ. Why does he put it that way? Sometimes I've read these verses in the past, and I thought, why didn't he just write it a little bit different so that I could feel more comfortable just quoting these verses on their own without people thinking that it's talking about universal salvation for everyone? Well, it's written that way on purpose. There's no mistakes in the Bible. And the way it's written there brings attention to the fact of the availability of salvation for all people. The availability that there there is no category of humanity who is beyond Christ's saving power. Everybody who is in Adam, everybody who is in Adam is a sinner. And every single one of those sinners If they come to faith in Jesus Christ, if they are brought from Adam to Christ, they will be saved. This is really important in the book of Romans because there's all these questions throughout the book of Romans about what's the relationship between Jew and Gentile? What's the relationship between how God deals with the Jewish people and how God deals with the rest of the nations? And he's making clear throughout the book, God saves everybody in the same way. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody needs to come to faith in Jesus. And everybody who comes to Jesus will be saved. That's what he's getting across here. The word all here, it doesn't mean that everybody is saved. We know that because he said back in verse 17 that death reigned through one man and much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He doesn't say everyone in the world will reign in Christ. He says those who receive the free gift that's given in Christ, those who receive Christ by faith will be saved. Everyone who does that. That's a gift of God. 
We also know that throughout the Bible that hell is real. The real people go to hell every day. And we don't want that to happen. That's one of our primary motivations to tell people the gospel. But it is true. And there is nobody in scripture who talks more about that reality than our Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. It's real. It happens. People go all the time. But what it does mean when it says all is that there is no one who's in Adam who is unsavable by Christ. Let's bring that home a little bit more specifically. It's not just an abstract concept of all the nations everywhere, which is a very important thing that you need to know, that, that, that God really has saved people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So when we send missionaries and support missionaries, or maybe you would become a missionary, we know that if, you, if you're going to an unreached tribe, an unreached people group, Jesus has redeemed people from that group. He will see people saved from there. That's important. But also, take it down to the level of your family. What about that person in your family who nobody has talked to in six years because of what they did and the patterns in their life that just never seem to go away? It seems like every family has somebody or maybe more than one somebody like that. Are they savable? Yes. It doesn't say here that all those in Adam die and in Christ all except for that person in your family can be made alive. No. What about that, what about that neighbor who loves to come over and pick on you about your faith and to make fun of you? Some of you have that. What about that situation where you just think this person is just so far gone? Or this person is very, very deep into another religion. Guys, there's nobody who is beyond the reach of Christ. There is nobody who is in Adam who is unsavable by Christ. Take these verses with you as part of your confidence when you go to tell people about Christ. There's nobody in Adam. Everybody you meet, they're in Adam. But they can be saved in Christ. So here's the question as we come to to the end of this is, which man are you with? Which one? Are you with the one man who committed the trespass? The one man who had the disobedience that brought condemnation and and death to all mankind? Sin. Are you with Adam? Or are you with Christ? You were born in Adam. Whether you think you're great, whether you think you're not, whether you think you have a lot of hope in what you can do, whether you think you're totally hopeless and beyond reach, you are in Adam, but the offer is there for you to be in Christ. Here's the thing. If if your faith is not in Jesus, if you are in Adam then there's no amount of good works that you have done that will ever come remotely close to saving you. But if you're in Christ, then there is no amount of sin that you have committed that will ever come remotely close to condemning you. Trust in Jesus. Be in Christ and have assurance that he's the one who did it. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that, that you have sent Christ, the new Adam, the new and better Adam, as we sang earlier. I thank you that he has obeyed perfectly in his life, in his active obedience. I thank you that he's obeyed perfectly in his death and his passive obedience to go to his passion on the cross. But God, we, we pray that you would grant us a simple childlike faith, even whether we'll ever be able to articulate theological concepts like that. We pray that we would have the simple childlike faith that the thief on the cross did. As he said, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. Lord, I pray for any who are still lost in their sins, who are still in Adam. Lord, there, there is so much that by your grace is good and admirable about humanity. And yet all hope was lost in Adam. And I pray that you would bring them hope in Christ. I pray that you'd let them see their sinfulness, the sinfulness of their state from birth, the sin that they've committed against you. And I pray that you'd draw them to the sinless Savior, Jesus. Lord, where we would trust in good works, things that we could do, I pray that you'd give us the grace to let go of those things. Just let them fall away. And I pray that you would give us the grace to trust in Jesus. No matter how many sins we've committed, no matter how far we've gone, God, we know that those who are in Christ have no condemnation, and we pray that that would be the case for everybody here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.